Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. A graphic novel, a TV show, well it's not TV, it's HBO, and will this thing succeed, and by how much, man? And some might cheer, and some might scoff, because it's Damon Lindelof, but either way we're off to watch some Watchmen. Watching Watchmen Talking Watchmen Analyzing Watchmen And maybe arguing over Watchmen Welcome to Watchmen Watch And what you watch, you watch, you watch You watch the second episode of Watchmen Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And as mentioned, we're going to be talking about the second episode of season one of HBO's Watchmen. We're officially past the premiere. The shine is off. The honeymoon phase is over. And we are jumping into it. If anything, I would say with a series like this, not with every series, but with a series like this, the second episode is very much the test because the first episode, I think there were, there were a couple of trolls. I, I'll say we'll throw it out there that were pretty upset about the episode, but for the most part, critics, fans were very surprised, uh, very excited about the episode. Uh, like we talked about on our 1.5 episode that just rolled out in the Watchmen watch feed, uh, the Tulsa riots, was a huge thing for people because most people had no idea that it existed at all. Uh, And now we're into the second episode. Now we're into the show proper. Before we get to the recap, before we get to anything like that, how did you feel about this compared to the first episode? And we should mention Justin uh, lost his shit while he was watching this. He's been screaming. He was totally fine before it, but now he has no voice. Yeah, my voice is going to pop and squeak like a fun little wheel. (laughs) (laughs) This is good. This is good for podcasts. I'm like a little red wagon that needs some grease. (laughs) Well, let's talk to you first, Justin. What did you think about the episode? I mean, I, it's it's very good. It's this this episode is definitely setting up. Oh God, is setting up a <laughs> mystery. Yeah, I just want to say real quick, I loved you in La Cage aux Folles. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, people hear Harvey Firestein uh, all the time, so they can hear this, right? Um, Justin, <laughs> you should quit smoking, man. Holy shit! I just took it up, and man, I love it. I love smoking. They do that on This American Life, actually. Right before they start their podcast, they smoke six packs of cigarettes. It adds to the flavor. (laughs) I'm coming to you live from Marlboro Country, and I love it. Yes. What about you, Pete? How did you feel about this episode? You you really liked the first one, right? I really liked the first one. The second one was a little, I don't know, it wasn't, you know, we kind of got into it a little bit. I wasn't as hyped um, and we we got you know they kind of got into a little bit more of the massacre, which was cool. Um, but we're kind of getting really kind of getting to know char- our characters and like their deal in this episode. So like the first one was kind of like over the top, kind of like you know gotcha episode, and this was kind of like settling in. Yeah, I, I mean we still got some big sequences throughout, which we'll talk about. But I do think that's on par with the structure of Watchmen, the comic book as well, because the first, Definitely. yeah, the first issue and maybe I'm misremembering, but you get the murder of Eddie Blake, you get Rorschach investigating the murder, you get hammered with information. And then that second issue takes a step back and really spends some time so you can explore the characters more. And at least so far, that seems to be what they're aping almost beat for beat. And it also is deepening the mystery a bit. 
we're getting mm-hmm. to find out what we're actually going to be dealing with with this story of this <clears throat> show. And it's exciting um, the way the world is sort of opening up with Nixonville and we get a lot of information about this uh, newer character, Will, uh, the Eggman, I think is what Pete said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, everything Pete says is a Beatles reference. Let's do a recap for those who, for whatever crazy reason, jumped into the second episode of the show here. Uh, but this takes place three-plus decades after Watchmen the comic book. You don't need to know too much about Watchmen the comic book at this point because we're following new characters for the most part in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, last episode, we met Sister Knight, a.k.a. Angela Abar, played by Regina King. She is living a double life, and we didn't know why exactly until this episode, uh, but she is pretending to be a normal baker who was raised in Vietnam, but she is actually a vigilante cop named Sister Knight. The way things work in Tulsa, Oklahoma, ever since the White Knight, which we get to see exactly what happened on the White Knight in this episode, uh, the cops in Tulsa have all dressed in masks, taken on different vigilante identities. Uh, This includes Sister Knight, as we mentioned. There's also a guy named Looking Glass who seems to read people very well. We don't see it this episode, but in the previous episode, he was taking people into his pod and interrogating them and reading them. And that includes members of the 7th Cavalry, who seems to be a racist group who has been inspired by Rorschach, the character from Watchmen, the original comic book, and taken all of his worst impulses to bear. Uh, They attacked cops. They uh, have some plan going on behind the scenes that we're not 100% sure about. Uh, And we don't find much more about it this episode, but certainly we find out a lot more about the 7th Calvary and how they live. One of the other cops that you should probably know about is uh, Chief Judd Crawford, played by Don Johnson. He, Nash Bridges. Nash Bridges. That's his uh, code name in the show. Exactly. Yes. That's the reveal. <laughs> and he was actually killed last episode. He was hung. Uh, he seemed very friendly. He seemed very magnanimous. Everybody seemed to like him on the force. He did not wear a mask like anybody else. But as we speculated in the last episode, it seems like he has some skeletons in the closet, as we find out here. Uh, but at the end of the episode where we left it, a strange man played by Louis Gossett Jr., who we find out is named Will, a.k.a. the Eggman, as Pete called him. Uh, he called Angela, knows who she is, says, come here to this location. And when she arrives there, she sees this man in a wheelchair sitting next to a tree where Judd Crawford is hanging. Uh, we find out, in fact, it is him, and he is dead this episode. And that's most of the stuff you need to know. Last little bit that's probably important, just because this is how things kick off, is uh, the man, Will, is holding a piece of paper that says, uh, keep this boy safe. And that is the same piece of paper that was given to a young boy that we kicked off the last episode with. He escaped from the Tulsa race riots. He was one of the only survivors of it. It certainly seemed like his entire family was killed there. And certainly the implication here is that Louis Gossett Jr. is the same as this young boy, though that doesn't seem possible since that was over... Uh, well, almost 100 years ago, and he would be real old in that case. So with all of that out of the way, let's jump into the episode. Let's talk about it, starting with that first scene, which takes place, they don't specify it, but World War I, right? It would would have to be for the timeline, because um, that piece of paper that the soldier finds is what the note is written on, and that happened in 1921. Mm -hmm. So it has to be World War I. Yeah. And I thought this was, again, a really fascinating way to start the show. Something that was rattling around in my mind ever since Pete said it in the last episode. Uh, You, Pete, you compared the show to Legion, which on the first episode of the time, I was like, what are you talking about, Pete? Come on. You're crazy. This is nothing like Legion. You don't know. (laughs) You don't know. And then uh, when this episode starts off with the typewritten letters of Watchmen, I started to see what you were saying a little bit. That that's the same way Legion would always start with something that was part of the show in a way and change the titles each time. Um, so at least in that respect, 
Uh, I'm on board with what you're saying, Pete. Pete nails it again. It's about fucking time. So we get to see a lady who is typing out this note. And uh, I meant to look this up before the show, uh, before we were taping. Uh, but it certainly seems to be another real thing where the German government dropped leaflets on the black soldiers who had enlisted. Uh, Justin, you're nodding. Do yes, you know I believe if- that is. Uh, I've heard of that before. Yeah. Uh, So this is another thing. Uh, Everybody was pretty floored by the Tulsa race riots where they're like, why didn't I learn about this in school? And this seems like the sort of same thing where they're educating about a part of African-American history that doesn't really get talked about. And in this case, the fact that the German soldiers are saying, hey, you come here, you're going to be valued. We like you. Why are you fighting for America where they hate you? And to drive home the point, Will's father gets spat on oh, by one awful. of the American soldiers. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about this opening sequence? Any takeaways from it in particular? Uh, I thought it was great. <laughs> the way they're establishing this um, historical precedent and revealing these things that a lot of people don't actually know about um, in history and using it as sort of the baseline uh, content for the show is great. Especially when Watchmen, the book, is everyone thought that was going to be like the the content generator for this show. And in fact, it's a lot of history in addition to the graphic novel. Yeah, uh, what freaks me out about this, uh, these episodes, there's been this underlying evilness. Like we first episode, we didn't really trust Don Johnson. That was super kind of like creepy. There was something to him. And this episode starts right off with the Frohr line and the Nazis and the Germany and it's just... Uh, it's, not, it's not Nazis because it's World War Nazis. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, it's just Germans. Not, we should be very careful to specify not all Germans are Nazis. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. And Pete, you should cancel your trip to Berlin. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Because it's not going to go well. Yeah. I, if anything, I don't think it's about evil there. What I took away from it is, <laughs> which is a lot of Watchmen, is who are your heroes and how do we treat our heroes? And in this case, you have these African-American soldiers who are shine, signing up who are choosing to fight for America, but America hates them. And in a very similar way, you have the conflict later on in the episode, not to jump ahead, but between the cops who are dressed as these vigilantes who are uh, on the surface, given that we know superhero lore, you would think, well, they're the heroes of the story, but they're attacking these regular Americans in Nixonville who they think in turn are all racist. And so like a lot of the stuff here, they just keep hitting over and over, which I think is so smart that nothing is black and white. Like it's all gray. It all goes back and forth, even though that's how we like to see the world. But it's definitely hard to watch, you know, the, uh, the way they just the police are just running up on people and beating them, especially with what's going on now in this country. It's like, it's very hard to watch, um, you know, police be violent towards uh, just regular people. And and to the point where, uh, you know, Regina King can't stomach it. She uh, tries to, like, step away, but then ends up, uh, you know, beating the shit out of somebody just because of all the stress and everything that she's gone through. It's- well, I think there's something else going on with her, and we're definitely jumping very far ahead here. Um, why don't we come back to that when we get to that point yeah. of the plot? Okay. Uh, Justin, can you walk us through the rest here? I'll squeak us through. Um, well, let's. Uh, do you want to talk about the title of the episode? Because it's sort of interesting, I think. It's yeah. Called- and by the way, I appreciate. Uh, let's give you the bulk of the talking this episode. I, I think yeah, that's definitely. Like- <laughs> Great idea. So the episode's titled Marshall Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, which is the, named after a painting. Which uh, we by, saw in the episode. We see the painting by George Catlin in 1834, but yeah, the name of the painting is the name's actually different. The adjectives are flipped. Oh. Yeah. So it's, it's Comanche, Comanche Feats Comanche. of Marshall Horsemanship. Uh, and the... It, I, I looked this up, too. The, uh, the technique that's shown off there is... Uh, He had observed, this is a life painting, he had observed uh, the Comanche soldiers 
basically flipping on the side of their horse so they could hide and attack at the same time. And knowing that, going into this uh, viewing of the episode, I was certainly trying to keep that in mind. And I don't see that across the board, but it certainly seems like that's kind of what Angela Abar is doing a lot, right? Like, she's hiding what her true intentions are so that she can go on the attack, so that she can move forward. Also, well, I think everyone's doing it, including Yeah, Judd, Lou Scossett Jr. is also doing it, too. Sure. Everyone in a mask is technically doing that, too. Right. And I imagine also on the black-white thing, they chose that painting because I believe the horses, like, there's a very clearly a white horse in there, but yeah. I think it's white horses and black horses throughout the painting. Yeah. I did think it was interesting in the middle of this, which they don't talk about too much, the the main conflict, the main thesis that they're dealing with here is the African-American experience. But then to throw in the Native American experience, not casually necessarily, that's probably the wrong word, but just to kind of toss it in there in the middle when that's sort of a big deal as well, uh, seemed like they potentially could have spent a little more time on that. On explaining why they did that? Uh, just, uh, I don't know. I, I don't think this is necessarily what they're dealing with. But when they're going so hard on African-American history to be like, and now here is this Native American painting that I'm sure has a lot of weight behind it as well, but not reference it further in any way or necessarily have Native American characters on the show that they're representing. Um, it was just interesting to me. I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. It was just surprising. I think it just it speaks to the history of conflict and uh, and just the bad uh, way, the horrible way that the America has dealt with these issues over the years. And yeah. I think it maybe it's a pointed thing to not at all touch on it because it's like, hey, we can't even get into that. We don't have the time. Uh, and that's not what this show is about. This show is about what this show is about. Yeah. Uh, oh, speaking of uh, dealing with history here, one other thing I wanted to mention. The episode is directed by Nicole Cassell, who directed the first episode. But it's written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Hughes, who is Carlton Hughes's son. Uh, Carlton Hughes and Damon Lindelof co-created Lost together. Nick Hughes worked pretty heavily on Leftovers. So there's a little bit of history there, too. Wow. That's cool. I'm from yeah. Syracuse. Ooh. So. So you basically wrote the episode. I'm part of it. No, that's a stretch, bro. <laughs> uh, so we do jump into the episode proper after this prologue here. You want to talk us through that, Justin? Okay, seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Why do you joke about it then make him do it? Uh, she uh, takes Will, uh, we find out will be Will, Louis Gossett Jr., to the bakery. She's pissed, gets suited up. They talk about Dr. Manhattan which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, let's stop here for a second. Not to get too heavily into theories, because we do have the <laughs> bonus episode that we're going to do next to talk about that. Uh, but there's several times that they talk about Dr. Manhattan in this episode beyond the play that we see later on in the Jeremy Irons, Tales of the Black Freighter sections, where first uh, Louis Gossett Jr., Will mentions... Maybe I'm Dr. Manhattan. And she's like, fuck you. Dr. Manhattan can't be other people. And besides, he's on Mars. And then her husband repeats the same thing. It's like, no, he can't be other people. To me, that seems like a glaring, well, yes, he can be other people, right? And he, I think he can be multiple people. And I think we're yeah. going to find out later that he is. Well, yeah. also in the comic, he had many versions of himself. He he did have many versions of himself, but to what they are saying here, they were always big blue naked guys. So it's yeah. not like necessarily he would pretend to be human. And certainly with everything we know about Dr. Manhattan, which is that he's very removed from humanity, it would be a big change over the course of these 30 years for him to decide to masquerade as a human being, I would think. Right. Or a bunch but of maybe the part of the show is him trying to relearn humanity. Yeah. I thought it was while we're talking about this. There's a scene later where um, uh, Toffer, uh, the kid that Toffer, 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 sorry, um, that uh, Angela has adopted um, mm -hmm. after the, the White Knight. He's building a model of a floating uh, castle house. Yeah, and that's the same thing that Doctor Manhattan is building on Mars, and maybe the same castle or something similar to where Vite is staying. So 
I don't know. That's a strong connection point. Well, and even beyond that, when we saw that quick shot of Dr. Manhattan on Mars in the news footage in the first episode, he knocked it down in the exact same way that Topher knocks that castle down this episode when he gets annoyed talking to Angela. So it's possible it might simply just be repeated visual motifs, which is something that Watchmen the comic book did as well. But I don't know, because it's a TV show and because there's fewer episodes than there were issues of the comic book, it feels like too important a piece of information to just toss away. And if anything, my big theory takeaway here, uh, I'm still a little sold on what you said last episode, Justin, about maybe... Jeremy Irons isn't Adrian Veidt, maybe is Dr. Manhattan, but there's also a little doubt in my mind of, okay, maybe Topher actually is Dr. Manhattan. Everybody's Dr. Manhattan. Well, Topher kind of has that, like, he seems not a part of everything. He's kind of like, there's a little distance from him and Mm -hmm. the rest of the world, it seems like, you know. He kind of has that pouty kind of, I'm not really... You can't, trust pouty, you can't yeah, trust you pouty can't, people. You can't trust pouty people. Can't trust. Now the other can't thing, though, just to, just to throw a third person who could be Doctor Manhattan in this episode, uh, when they are in the what is it, Milk and Honoi Bakery uh, that Angela Bar is never going to open. Um, when Louis Gossett Jr. is talking about Doctor Manhattan, and maybe I'm Doctor Manhattan, they pull to a wide shot. And on the right end of the wide shot, there's a blue glow that's the exact same color as Dr. Manhattan, which, again, maybe a visual motif, maybe an indicator of something more. That's certainly something they did throughout the comic book, where whenever Dr. Manhattan's influence was felt, John Higgins would give it that blue color, usually somewhere in the foreground. So, again, it seems very purposeful in this case. while we're uh, talking about the bakery, I want do want to talk about some of the fun moments. Um, he asks for sugar with his coffee, and then she's like, "We don't have any." He's like, "Some bakery." That was pretty funny. And then when he asks for his pills, she's like, "Why don't you use your you know psychic powers there, Doctor Manhattan?" And that was also a funny little bit. It's good. It is really funny throughout. There's also some funny asides that Jeremy Irons does later. It is otherwise crazy, super dark scenes. Yeah. Uh, what about but it's great. Moth Paparazzi? Those are funny. Yeah. It's it's a funny show. It's basically moth a comedy. Paparazzi, you think is funny? Yeah. That was meant to be a, a joke, I think. Yeah. I don't know. That guy got beaten up pretty hard. It was, It was fun, though. And I do think, ultimately, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Last week didn't make as much sense on HBO all by itself. But this yeah. week, paired with Mrs. Fletcher, paired with Silicon Valley, it's a two-hour comedy block. That's right. This is definitely America's favorite comedy, is Watchmen. <laughs> yeah, must-see must TV. If Bazinga. You Bazinga. Bazinga. I can't wait until Dr. Manhattan comes out and says, Bazinga. He will, 100%. Yeah. Well, let's start. We should start talking about what other characters on other shows are Dr. Manhattan. (laughs) I I think uh, Ted Danson on Cheers is Dr. Manhattan. Doogie Hauser, definitely Dr. Manhattan. That totally makes sense. Dr. Hauser, Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, come on. Mm -hmm. Uh, The single guy on The Single Guy. Wow. I, I feel like that's your main pop culture <laughs> reference, Alex. And that's I've, very weird. I'm I've say, only seen one sitcom, and it's The Single Guy. It was very bad. I'm going to say Dr. Katz. Definitely Dr. Manhattan. Oh, that's good. Another very topical reference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, uh, Patrick Mahomes, a quarterback for the Kansas City uh, Chiefs, <laughs> is Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. And maybe uh, I'm going to just say Katie Kirk. What? Good. Wow. Good. Yeah, why not? Great. You we solved it. Good, good podcast recap, guys. Yep. So they're in the bakery. Uh, they have this whole conversation. <laughs> Ultimately, she decides to leave him there because she gets a call to let her know that John Crawford is dead. I do think it's important to note also that her immediate reaction on getting to the bakery is to put on her sister night uniform, that she's putting on this armor for herself to protect herself for what's happened. Even though 
uh, Will already knows who she is, but yeah. she gets the call. She does a good acting job of pretending she has no idea what's going on. And she proceeds to walk out uh, and go to the crime scene. And when she gets there, people are swarming around the uh, the body. Uh, she is in her car. Looking Glass comes into her car and does some classic Rorschach dialogue. Oh, where yeah. He's, he's the real Rorschach. He really is. Like, they were pushing it very hard to that scene where yeah. uh, just the growl that Tim Blake Nelson puts in his voice, even straight up Rorschach. You must have loved that, Pete. Yeah, and he even was eating, and it was extra creepy. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing creepier than eating nuts. Eating is weird. It Imagine is weird. We put food in our mouth every day. Well, especially day. the way he, like, puts his mask, like, halfway up and then eats. Super creepy. What, you yeah. take your mask all the way off? Yeah. What, do you take your pants all the way off and you go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> I get full on That's naked. That's two separate things, bro. Not Why in my mind. Does it have to be? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, the bathroom's the ultimate kitchen. Yeah. Oh, Here's what man. I say. Cut out the middle bed. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I don't know throw what those, that means. Throw those nuts in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks. Uh, you know what? No thanks, big intestine. Uh, <laughs> wow, good. They're always trying to make me use these organs. <laughs> Fuck you guys. I'll use what organs I want. I, I'm not using my throat today. That's for sure. So they're in the car. They do have this uh, fun exchange where he says, got anything to eat? And she says, I have some nuts in the glove as if like she has the food there. But that exchange is so weird. And she's so surprised that he's just asking about it. Yeah. Uh, but then he proceeds to very clearly interrogate her about what's going on, what yeah. she knows about Judge Crawford, uh, what she knows about the death. Uh, she calls him out on it. And is like, you, why are you so callous and emotionless about this? Why don't you care? And he basically is like, if I don't care, why am I crying under this mask? Which to me, like, classic Usher style lied. Crying under the mask tonight. Uh, definitely, oh, yeah. yeah. That's Feels definitely like the that. reference I think they were going for there. Yes. Uh, I, did, I love that exchange, and I love that relationship there, the way that they establish how they work together in this type of situation. It's also interesting that uh, Looking Glass is, is the new Rorschach, because uh, a Looking Glass is, I guess, uh, technically a heightened version of a Rorschach test. Like it, it, or it changes it a bit. A Rorschach test, it's up for the outside person to interpret what is being seen, which was what Rorschach was all about in the comic. And this is about exposing, like showing you what actually is. A looking glass doesn't, there's no interpretation. It just exposes the person looking at it. Potentially. I will say, though, that the name isn't mirror you know it's looking glass and so there's the lewis carroll of it all that going through the looking glass leads you to this messed up world so i don't know necessarily what you could read in that but it's not i don't think it's as simple as looking at him and you see yourself it's no his name is full length mirror <laughs> his name is that mirror that you work out in front of that gives you workouts that i don't remember the name of right now Oh, I think it's just called Mirror. Oh, just Mirror. <laughs> no, there's like uh, Paloma or something. I don't know. Peloton? I keep seeing ads for it. What? Are you talking about Peloton? Peloton, yeah. There you go. That's a bicycle. Oh, uh, you're, you're really plugged into workout culture, Alex. I have, no, no. They have this Mirror now where it's like yeah, it broadcasts no, no, the yeah, workouts on it. Yeah, it's we, called Mirror. It, it's called... Well, let's not fight about this. Let's not fight. So yeah, Can uh, we move take, on, I, please? Yeah. I gotta no. smoke. I gotta smoke four cigarettes. So just give me. A <laughs> yeah, quick cigarette break in the middle of the podcast before we continue. Uh, ooh, smooth. Ooh. So, uh, Sister Knight gets. Wait, wait. Out. We, we 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 missed a scene, Alex. Um, the newsstand, huge important. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, that was a huge scene. That was great. Uh, and that, for those who haven't read Watch with a comic book, is a very clear callback to. Watchmen, uh, where there was this almost the same exact characters, except in this case, they're African-American instead of white, which is very purposeful to the setting of Tulsa and what we're seeing here. Uh, old news bad who's super into like 
conspiracy theories and very gregarious guy walks up delivering the newspaper. You can notice that the newspaper is the new frontiersman, which was a conspiracy rag that was printed back in uh, Watchmen, the comic book. And the implication I took away from it, because there's a huge stack of them, uh, they seem to be the ones that actually printed Rorschach's journal back in the day. There's a big question left open-ended at the end of the Watchmen comic book. But what I took away from this is they printed Rorschach's journal and probably went big, right? Yeah. I think it's like the New Frontiersman is the New York Times. Yeah. And it'd be uh, like if, if people started printing off Breitbart and it was delivered to newsstands oh, every day. Jesus. Oh, my God. But, but that's what's happening in the new Facebook news app. So uh, buckle up for that. Yeah. I love our modern world. Uh, and the other detail that happens here is a young girl gets out of a car and takes a bunch of newspapers uh, back to somebody. My guess is that this is uh, our first tease. We talked about this a little bit. There's a character called Lady True that we haven't met yet, played by Hong Chao. She's a trillionaire in town. uh, And certainly I think the implication is that the papers are going back to her. The other thing that's important to note that they haven't talked about in the show but came out on the supplementary material is uh, you that... Love, you love this supplementary I material. I do. It makes me feel smart, Justin. That's all you talked about in the 1.5 episodes <laughs> supplementary material. Well, because uh, of what happened with the squid exploding in New York, uh, everybody stopped using technology at a certain point. Uh, they got scared of it, and so the world is just starting to adopt computers and other technology now. There's certainly things that have made advances because of Dr. Manhattan, because of Adrian Veidt. Uh, but again, what I took away from the big tack of newspapers, there's no internet in this world. Uh, because, and I only so know this. Awesome. It is. Uh, it's, uh, it's because I was watching the scene and I was like, who's going to read that many newspapers? Why wouldn't you just look it up and online? And then I remembered, Oh, right. There's actually, there is no internet in this world. So there you go. Awesome. Yeah. Also like, uh, she's getting paged. So that's kind of like an older technology. That she's Wait, using. What do you mean to older? I still use my pager. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly, recording, I'm recording inside my pager. Yeah. That's why I'm, my voice is all fucked up. I'm constantly, uh, texting Justin nine one one. So he knows to call me back from a payphone he finds on the street. That's right. I'm the New Yorker who's still using payphones. Yeah. Uh, where else are you going to change, you know? Change oh, no, your clothes? I just thought it was a Girl Scout, you know, just getting, making sure she's, like, doing her due diligence as a Girl Scout and reading all the papers. Yeah, I think we're going to find out a lot more about how the Girl Scouts operate in this world as we continue on this series. Yeah. Huge part of Watchmen. I think uh, in in this world, Girl Scouts run Wall Street. Isn't that true? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Not yes, Ad. Just yes. <laughs> yeah. you, you nailed it. <laughs> Correct. Okay, so back to Sister Knight. Uh, she comes out. There's another interesting thing that immediately amps up the tension here. Uh, We didn't mention one of the other cops is a guy named Red Scare, who is Russian in the the world of Watchmen. The Russians and the United States are allies uh, and influenced American culture quite a bit. Uh, Red Scare clearly takes off of that. Uh, And there's a bit of a scuffle between the three of them as they realize nobody's in charge anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. How does that work? If the chief of police dies, who who's in charge? Does anybody know? They do a rock, paper, scissors tournament, and then oh, whoever okay. wins becomes the new chief. Yeah. Is it best two out of three, or how does it work, Pete? Oh, As our cop it. correspondent. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's real legit. We're talking uh, best of seven tournament. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's way more legit than three. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Four, four more legits. I settle all my big dealings with uh, best of seven. That's like how the, I convinced my wife to marry me. Smart. Wow. Oh, wait, paper, four times in a row. <laughs> paper, 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 ring. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Rock beats ring, so watch out. Oh, geez. Uh, all right, so what happens next, Justin? Flashback time to the oh, white knight. here we go. 
Here it comes. So we do get this flashback uh, to the White Knight. There's two times in the episode, I'll note, uh, that Angela Abar holds somebody yeah. for a yeah. little too long. She She's not, not exactly letting herself feel things, but this is the moment when her emotion seeps through. And one of them is when she's bringing... Uh, Judd Crawford down from the tree and she holds him and hugs him in an almost interceptible way except for the fact that we're focusing on with her with the camera and then at the end she does the same thing with Will when she's lifting him up and putting him in the car Uh, and not only is this a great parallel thing but something we talked about with the first episode I still feel like they're building this like a comic book as much as it's based in TV you have things that happen at the beginning, things that happen at the end, and it almost folds in the middle in terms of the structure, which I think yeah. is so neat. And that's it's where, very cool. Like you're right in the middle, you, a oh, lot sorry. of re- repeated uh, visual imagery, like the comic. I think they are actually using a lot of that, which is uh, great. It reminds me of the back of the cover of Mad Magazine where you got to fold it in to see the real picture. <laughs> yeah. Again, one of the greatest comedies on TV right now. Yeah, Mad, uh, Mag, Mad, Mad TV. Yes. So we do get the flashback to the White Knight. Uh, we see Angela and her husband. Uh, they're having a romantic good time by the Christmas tree. Uh, he yeah. really wants to open a package. She wants to open his package, oh, if you boy. know what I mean. Okay. And as the clock ticks over to midnight, the 7th Cavalry comes in. She pushes him out of the way. There's a quick action sequence where she immediately takes one of them down, and then another one shoots her before uh, getting shot himself. Is that... What happens? Oh, it's weird uh, no, because she, she stabs she stabs the one dude. And yeah, then, she stabs the one dude, and the other dude has the drop on her, and then she kind of like loses consciousness. Yeah, yeah. He purposefully didn't kill her. Yeah, which is interesting, uh, given what we find out about Judd Crawford this episode. I would say. Yeah, I wondered if it was. Particularly because he is there when she wakes up. They have a very heartfelt conversation uh, where it turns out that pretty much the entire police force has been decimated or is quitting. Uh, The 7th Cavalry knows everybody's identities and where they live. Uh, Angela's partner and his wife were killed in their bed. Their kids survived. So we do find out how she got Topher, how she got the little girl as well, who I don't remember the name of. I think there are three kids. Three kids. Yeah. Uh, so this is her partner's kids that she and her partner adopted. Uh, she and her husband adopted. Uh, and Judd and Angela are there for each other. She's like, I'm not quitting. Yeah, th- this was weird to me because uh, it, it seems like they weren't actually close until this moment. Um, she's surprised that he's there a little bit and that her husband's not. So I wonder if we find out that Judd was responsible for the White Knight in some way. Yeah. Why would he have spared her if he didn't actually already know her? Why is she being earmarked to yeah. live and move on? Yeah. Well, there's a very specific thing that Will says earlier in the episode where he says there's a vast and terrible conspiracy at play. And he says she, she would not believe it if he described it to her. I mean, if you want to start like going full on murder board about this, you could certainly start it's connecting. Time. It's Let's time. Let's do it. Uh, you could certainly start connecting Will, having a very clear connection to Angela, as we find out by the end of the episode, Judd protecting her, uh, being tied to the 7th Cavalry in some way, potentially. Lots of elements there that don't necessarily make sense. Um, but certainly, uh, this is not a show that is going to truck in coincidence. Yeah, definitely. And we have this senator character that's introduced later on, uh, who I think is involved in some way in the conspiracy. Yeah, they always are. All senators are. There are no clean senators. Oh, wow, man. Um, I, Except one, for Chuck Schumer. What I, the fuck? Whoa, My okay. senator. What? Wow. Dude. Alex, you have two senators, by the way, not just Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer. Also, Kristen Gillibrand. <laughs> yes. Uh, nice. Way to name both of them. Thank you. I'll uh, text them later. Hey, I was taping my Watchmen podcast. I yeah. talked about you. They'll love the credit. <laughs> uh, I also thought it was interesting that Tulsa is the only town in this world that has the masked cops. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that before, but that's you'd think that'd yeah, be more seemed, of a, a thing. Right. It seemed like 
the implication for the first episode was that okay, all cops something are- happened. With, yeah, something happened with the vigilantes post Squid, and everybody started putting on masks or whatever. But yeah, it's just this town. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Uh, and then the the scene ends with um, Nash Bridges saying it's okay to cry, and I just felt like this was so odd. He is yeah, like he comes across like a bit of a sociopath mm-hmm. in these first two episodes. Well, part of the theme of this episode is feeling things about things, right? Because you have Looking Glass saying he's crying under the mask, Angela saying I'll cry later. She, as we said, puts on her armor. She also fakes emotion later on at the, I don't know what you want to call it. It's not a shiva, but it's a memorial or whatever's happening at Judd's house. Um, Yeah. It's awake. Awake. There you go. Thank you. Um, So there's a lot of that going on here, right? In terms of feeling emotion or not feeling emotion and how you let your feel your feel it. And that potentially ties into the whole Dr. Manhattan of it all, where he doesn't feel anything. Maybe. And a lot of this, like being frozen into inaction that feels like uh, a thing that's, that keeps happening to characters and things. Yeah. But what was cool was Regina Hall was uh, Regina King was uh, faking it, and she got faking to what faking uh, at the wake that she was uh, you know feeling a certain oh. way. Okay, yes. Do we want to jump ahead to the fake wake? Fake wake. Well, and, and technically, uh, Regina King was also faking it because she's an actor who is playing a role. <laughs> In Dude, fact, that's this, not true, this whole show is not real. Think about that. Bam. Well, you know what? Then you're not real if the show's not real. Uh, the whole thing is actually CGI'd. It's, it's an animated show. Uh, it's America's number one animated comedy. It is. Uh, well, so, well, let's do that. You want to do this, this museum scene real quick first before we get yeah. to that later stuff? Uh, it's uh, Sister Knight investigating goes to this museum place where she uh, lies to a computer and... Uh, we find out that DNA tests are pretty uh, wide open happening all over the place. Yeah, I would have thought she would have gone to the precinct for that, but I guess not. Well, th- this is what she's doing the entire episode, right? Is that she has some information that nobody else has. This is to jump ahead to her reaction at the riot in Nixonville. I think the reason she's holding back is not that, like, oh, this isn't right, but because she is actually scared because they're doing the wrong thing. Like she has, she knows a lot more about Judd's death than she's letting on. And that's the same reason she doesn't go to the precinct here. She's not willing to give up this information about will because she suspects that there's something more with him that connects back to her because he is calling her out specifically. And of course she finds out that she's right. Uh, two things about this museum, which is fascinating. Uh, one, this came up a bit in the first episode, but there are people protesting what they call red outside, yeah. which clearly seemed to be uh, Robert Redford giving reparations for years, <laughs> uh, decades yeah. I think uh, centuries sure. of uh, horribleness by the American people towards African-Americans. Uh, something I saw somebody point out on Twitter that I thought was kind of fascinating was the idea that this probably explains why there is a prosperous African-American middle class in Tulsa is because of these reparations, right. potentially. And that's certainly what the lower class is protesting in this way. Uh, the other thing is when she presses on the screen to get the DNA test, it brings up a congressman named Henry Louis Gage Jr., who is a real guy in the real world. Wait, and it's his the name s- Skip? His name is Skip. His, his nickname is actually Skip. Uh, he is a critic and teacher. Uh, he uh, discovered the earliest literary works of African-American writers. So it's an interesting little tweak that, A, they got the real guy, uh, that, but B, in the world of Watchmen, he's become a congressperson. He's, he's yeah. part of the government. Uh, but yeah, she puts this swab in. Uh, there was a sweet move that she does where she offers coffee, takes the coffee cup, puts it in a plastic bag, takes it to the museum, swabs it, and puts that in to get the DNA test on Will. Uh, and then do we get the party after that? 
Not party. Wake. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very, very different, those things. Death party. Uh, well, a couple of things. Um, we have a, a scene that feels very leftovers to me with uh, the guy on the porch wanting to see the kids. Oh, yeah. Um, Jim Beaver. It was Jim Beaver from Supernatural. There you go. Uh, and the he, uh, Angela ends up paying him, and he references the, the Red for Nations there. Yeah. Um, which I thought that was just a great little moment that helps flesh out more of the family dynamic here and mm-hmm. how angry people like him are at uh, African-Americans. Yeah. Uh, and then she goes inside and talks to her husband. They have the conversation we mentioned earlier where he's like, Dr. Manhattan can't do that. Clearly indicating that Dr. Manhattan can do that. Uh, also on the Watchmen history note, when she comes in, the kids are all playing pirates uh, which, uh, in this yeah. world, everybody loves pirates. Pirates very are popular. awesome. And I also thought it was very telling, uh, more on the visual motif, I think, than the character thing, uh, but her husband is wearing a ghost costume that looks a whole lot like a Ku Klux Klan costume, uh, yeah. which, of course, we see later on. And I don't know that I would take anything away from that with the husband, necessarily, uh, but certainly that's something that is preparing us for that image later on. Yeah, I agree. I think it was definitely more of just like you subconsciously remember that. And when you see it in Judd's room, you're like, it's so much starker because you're like, yeah, there's that instant recall. Mm -hmm. Um, So then we get this uh, wild, um, crazy long disclaimer. We get a quick uh, montage of uh, a couple of of, uh, looking glass Mm -hmm. uh, and some. I would uh, like to quickly point out that those floating uh, metal Legos were pretty badass. They were pretty sweet, and I would love to play with them. Yep. Great. Uh, so, yeah, we have a setup of American Horror Story. This is another thing. American uh, Hero ex- Story. Excuse me. Yeah. Hello, uh, guy. Well, yeah. no. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, David Lindelof said that he was actually inspired by Ryan Murphy and wanted to make it sort of a campy show in that style. So I'm right. Take yeah, it yeah. easy. You are I, not I right. like you were inspired to make that mistake by that yeah. reference. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So American Hero Story, they do the setup and they have an insanely long disclaimer, which again, I think is part and parcel of this ultra liberal world that they're living in. Yeah. Very funny. Uh, yeah, it is very funny, and I, I like the fact that it is over the top and they're willing to make fun of themselves because there's a 0% chance that everybody on the writing staff isn't completely ultra-liberal themselves. So Wow, that's, good. that's quite a judgment, Alex. Yeah, Alex, you don't know the entire writing staff, all right? Because I'll, I'll, I'll have you know, Lindsey Graham uh, is a writer <laughs> for The Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> he is. Yeah, he writes all the Jeremy Irons sections. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And it's just uh, a, do- a documentary of his life. Yes. So we get to see a bit of American Hero Story, and everybody's watching it, even though they have this warning. Uh, like you said, we see Looking Glass. Uh, we also see the Seventh Cavalry, and they're building something which yeah. doesn't bode well. Uh, but the Batteries. American Hero Story scenes are kind of fascinating because we get to see some hero that I don't think we've heard about in the continuity before doing his narration. Yeah, uh, yeah, who is it? He says, says he's a circus strongman. Yeah, and he says, uh, that's me, I'm dead there, except that's not actually me at all. If I told you who I was, you wouldn't watch all the way through. And then we get a scene of a robbery in a grocery store. Hooded Justice smashes through the window, destroys a bunch of dudes in the most graphically violent way possible. Yep. Uh, and then gives a narration over scenes of Angela driving, talking about masks and identities and why we hide ourselves. And I love this. To me, this was like... So good. Vintage Tales of the Black Freighter that I was missing a little bit the last episode. But in the comic book, you get this narration that is like purposely on the nose going over what everybody's doing. And it was the same thing here. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah, the whole line where he's like, that's why I fucking wear this mask was pretty badass. Yeah, it's nice that that works, that sort of obvious juxtaposition, um, because it could seem a little fake on TV as opposed to comics, and it it actually played really well, I thought. 
Yeah, and something that we talked about the last episode that the show is doing really well two episodes in is it's using TV superheroes and media as a touchpoint. They've had two theatrical scenes in two episodes as well. So where Watchmen was very clearly using comics as a reference point to talk about superhero comics, this is using live productions as a commentary on their live production. And that's very neat. Yeah. Uh, then we get to wake. Um, she walks in, she's playing it cool. Uh, Judd's wife, Jane is there. She seems pretty fine with the death of her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was odd. And then you get, uh, Bob from Mad Men who plays the Senator. We talked about. Oh, is that who he was? Yes. Is he the guy that they say not great Bob about? Yeah. He's the dude who, uh, has hidden his past. He shows up at the office in Mad Men and quickly rises to the top, and then he's later exposed. Mm, that's exciting. Great. It's a great character arc for him, and it's great to see him here. Yeah, but you know what? It's not great, Bob. That's right. That's the one thing that's not great is Bob. <laughs> uh, but then she pretends to faint and gets taken upstairs. Turns out it's a clever ruse so she can search the bedroom. I do that shit all the time. I love fainting. Uh, I, go, I'm going to pretend s- to faint before the end of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> nice. Like, you I'm go this- through your own stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm recording at home? Yes. <laughs> I do this thing a lot where I pretend to have like a fucked up voice for sympathy. Uh, mm-hmm. Cool. And it works every time. Like a charm. Uh, she puts on, I think we're pretty clearly night owl glasses. Again, we're getting... This is sort of this is very much an assumption, but it certainly seems like Dan Dryberg's tech has filtered through the police force from the owl mm-hmm. ship last episode to we get these uh I don't know, what would you call them? Three D glass not three D glasses. X ray X ray glasses. X ray X ray specs. Uh and she searches and, and she vision. ends up finding night vision. Uh she finds a hidden compartment and Judd Crawford is hiding a Ku Klux Klan uniform with a badge. It is a sheriff's badge, but again, with that recurring visual motif, we saw the badge popping up throughout the previous episode. That's very much his symbol. So the question is, was it his? Was it somebody else's? There's a shot of what looks like maybe his father with him as a kid yeah. in the room as well. So... Maybe maybe it's just a hand me down, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't. You yeah, don't they take kept a showing that picture. And, you don't take a hand me down and put it in a nice little display. What uh, what racist stuff did your parents give you guys? <laughs> wow, <laughs> very loaded question, Alex. <laughs> no, I wouldn't well, accept racist things. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, interesting. Sounds like you were offered them. Uh, Let's move on (laughs) through the plot line. So she takes the uh, Ku Klux Klan uniform, stuffs it in her bag, and she brings it back to Will, right, to confront him. But he has... uh, Well, actually, before that, before she brings it back to confront him, we pass by the painting, and that gives us a fade from that horse to Jeremy Irons, whoever he's playing, uh, riding his horse through the wilderness, and we get some bonkers information in this scene. This whole thing was crazy. I love. You're talking about the tomato, tomato on the tree. Yeah, he eats a tomato off a tree. Tomatoes is, don't grow that way. Huh? Well, he eats I, a tomato off the tree. Then he gets his honeycomb cake, but this time it has two candles in it, which seems to imply whatever he's celebrating an anniversary of. There's been two of those, right? So yeah. maybe he's been there for two years by this point or whatever is going on. Or I thought maybe every day he gets a cake. There'd be a lot more candles on it than I'd think, right? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we, we, yeah, we just don't know. Yeah, we don't uh, know. They are prepping for the performance of this play, and then we get to see the play. And it's awesome. It's the origin of Dr. Manhattan. He legit not, burns up. Not a all dude. of it is awesome. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Uh, yeah, the guy awesome? dies. You know, they burn a dude alive. And then, you know, he that's seems act, to be. That's acting, Pete. Yeah. That's, that's the theatrical. No, life. no. Someone really died. 
I'm a they, classic. I'm a classically trained actor, and I've almost died in multiple productions. Have you yep. ever seen Hamilton? They set the guy who plays Hamilton on fire at the end of every. Uh, Did you also have to shave your balls and then paint them blue? Yeah, uh, it's like I, you haven't seen Hamilton. <laughs> any actor you see on any Broadway actor you see on the street has shaved balls painted blue. Yes. <laughs> Just and you'll, next- you'll be able to see them when they take their pants off to go to the bathroom like you do. <laughs> <laughs> next time you see Patty LuPone, ask her about it. Yeah. I, I'm so, telling you, Justin, you should try it. You might really like it. Oh, my God. This is bizarre. Uh, so uh, they have the play. It's The Watchmaker's Son. Dr. Manhattan's origin was he was a dude named John Osterman. He was uh, in love with a girl named Jenny Slater. Is that it? Uh Yes. Okay, I just realized how close that is to Jenny Slate, and it yeah. really threw me off. Uh, also, A.C. Slater. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that is very close to that as well. Uh, they have a little thing there that I believe we talked about on the 1.5 episode, but there's this recurring human moment that Dr. Manhattan returns to after his accident where he had a beer with Jenny and they have that there as well in the Watchmaker's Son play, where she says, time for one more beer? And he says, no, no time. And she's left her watch inside of this reaction chamber. He goes in. Dude actually, Tom Meissen, uh, who plays the dude, actually gets set on fire. Oh. Uh, and he, she cries real tears as uh, asked by... Jeremy Irons character and he goes bravo bravo and then everybody unmasks and there are several of the guys and several of the women the guy is also playing Dr. Manhattan as mentioned totally nude completely blue wearing a fencing mask that's been painted blue I guess I think so I loved how it looked like Spider-Man which I thought was purposeful yeah what yeah I think they were Riffing on that a little bit, like making him look like a superhero mask. Uh, well, I think functionally it needed to be a mask because otherwise it would have revealed that it was all clones or automatons or whatever before yeah. they wanted to. Right. Um, and secondarily, yeah, I think it's a super. That's like a, a reference to a cheesy superhero costume. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then there's several things that happen in the scene as well that I think are good to point out. Uh, one of them on the is Jeremy Irons playing Adrian Veidt or not beat uh, towards the end of the play. One of the characters says, and nothing ever ends. And he whispers kind of angrily. I took for, to himself. Nothing ever ends, which is the last thing that Dr. Manhattan says to Adrian Veidt in Watchmen, the comic book, before he leaves. So, again, it could go either way. That could be he is Dr. Manhattan, and he's saying the last thing he said to me, Adrian Veidt, or it could be Adrian Veidt bitterly remembering. Uh, that's the way it felt like to me. Because yeah, who agree. else that's... would know that information? It has to be mm-hmm. him. Or his son or something, or a clone of him or something. Okay, it could either be him or Dr. Manhattan, who would also know. Uh, But it definitely came across like a bitter uh, recounting of it. But Dr. Manhattan wouldn't be angry about that last line. He would be okay with it. That's what I'm saying. That's what, yeah. He'd be like, like, you burnt. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Manhattan would create another one of himself just so he could high-five himself for saying that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Infinite hype man. Ooh, yeah. Uh, So then we do cut back to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where uh, Angela confronts uh, Will. She throws out the Ku Klux Klan uniform, and she wants to know what's going on with him. Uh, But uh, at the same time, she finds out that he just left. He just went to go get some eggs. He went to go get some eggs. He's the Eggman. He's the Eggman. Came back. Uh, I... I was pretty grossed out because I think hard-boiled eggs are gross. Yeah, me I too. Agree. Feel, yeah, I also gross. But it was also this really cool power play on his part to be like, "Oh, you're going to leave me here? Fine. I'm not as helpless as you think I am." Once again, kind of like proving maybe it was him who hung the evil sheriff dude. So it was. I love this. Was it really him? Kind of thing that they're playing with. Well, what do you think at this point? Do you think Will did, in fact, as he keeps saying, I'm the man who hung your sheriff? 
Was yeah, it him or was he it was, somebody else? He knew that he was like a racist dude. I don't think it was him. Uh, for He's talking about a grand conspiracy. He's clearly involved in a counter-conspiracy of some sort. So he has help. He at least has someone who knows how magnets work uh, working <laughs> on his side. He well, also... He also, though, uh, does seem pretty surprised about the Ku Klux Klan uniform, where she listened to him literally and said, you said to look for skeletons in his closet. So I went to his closet and found a almost literal skeleton in his closet. And he's like, no, I I was just talking metaphorically. No, but he was also saying that, like, he takes his pills for memory and he hadn't taken his pills in a while. So it could just be one of those things where it kind of it comes and goes a little bit because he is so old. But speaking of the magnet, that to me looked like it was like coming from one of those owl ships. Uh, potentially. I mean, not, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. What happens is Agilent basically, she gets a call, finds out that Will is who he says he is, that he was around during Tulsa and is owed reparations. And not only that, she intuits this very quickly and finds out that she is, in fact, his granddaughter. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't offer up that information to him in any way, though it certainly seems like he knows exactly what she found out. A second later, he basically says, like, yeah, I'm related to you. Yeah. Yes. And I just uh, want to get to know you and see what you were all about. That was very interesting. Yeah. And she seems like she's about to go with him and listen to him. And then she turns back. She clams up, says, you're under arrest, takes him outside, puts him in the car. You, you could notice, actually, he looks up in the air before yeah, she even puts him in the car. So he knows what's coming. Uh, and then, as you said, something comes out of the sky. There's a big magnet. It takes the car, almost hits Angela and flies away in the air as he smiles, looking back at her, and she's totally confused. Uh, what do you think's going on there? She also not only lost her lead suspect, but her car <laughs> as well. I mean, how do you explain that to the insurance? Even worse, her car. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe we got Night Owl 3. You saying Night Owl 3 is the kind of insurance that you can get where you, it can, protects you from magnets that come out of the sky? Yo, Pete, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm Why are you talking about insurance? Well, when your yeah. car disappears, how are you going to get a new car? You know, you got to you got to do a claim, you know, and what do you write on that claim? A lot of your theories about this show are about, like, very down-to-earth things. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that about you, Pete. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we end the episode. Before we wrap up, anything else you want to touch on? Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I really liked the kind of what the fuck moment there where the car just gets flown away and she's just kind of like, what the fuck? As Beastie Boys Eggman plays. Pretty awesome ending to an, an insane app. I... I'm very curious to hear people's reactions to this episode because certainly there was a nice mix of reactions to the last episode, as we said, mostly positive, but there, there were only little things where people felt like, Oh, that was confusing. Oh, that was weird. What's up with the squids? What's going on with that? But for the most part, I think if you knew you were going in on an HBO show, uh, that's sort of tangentially about superheroes or mass vigilantes who are able to follow along. This episode to me was much weirder. And so hmm. I am very curious to see the people who are like, all right, all right, I'm on board for the first episode are still on board in the second episode, particularly those who did not read the comic book. I don't know. This is way less confusing than Westworld. Yes. So like, and lost. Do you? I'm but probably going to get Lost was uh, very straightforward in its yes. format, so you sort of knew what you were getting into every episode. They, we're all over the place now. Do you? Uh, I feel like I could get a flame because everybody likes them so much. But do you feel like uh, Trent Reznor and Attica Ross's uh, score in this episode in particular sounded like Westworld? Oh, uh, I didn't. You you thought it did. I did, particularly some of the stuff during the end when they're at the car. There's just this very tinkly, slow, sad piano thing that was going on, yeah. which sounded very Westworld to me. 
The rest I, of the score is great, but that part yeah. I was like, uh, I don't, I don't want to watch Westworld right now. Freaked me out yeah. when you said tinkly. Oh, uh, do you need to take off your pads and go to the bathroom go, now? Gotta go body pee. Yeah. <laughs> If you'd like to support our podcast, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by and we will chat with you about Watchmen. You can follow us on Twitter, Watchmen Watch One, Watchmen Watch Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Also, uh, check out comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and more. You can subscribe and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Android, or the app of your choice. Uh, We'll be back halfway through the week on Thursday morning with an episode where we talk about your theories, your predictions, questions that you might have. So hit us up on Twitter in particular about those, or you could drop them in the Watchmen Watch Patreon Slack room. If you do subscribe to that, uh, we've been having some great discussions in there. So definitely check those out. And remember, we taped this podcast 35 minutes ago. Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> oh, God.